good to see. It's good to see a lot of children here this morning and uh, heading out to Children's Church, and they're going to have a great time this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. As you're finding your place there, I uh, just want to thank our Nick and our worship team this morning for really uh, setting up God's Word well. Uh, it's amazing how music, God's gift to us, kind of puts us in a, a state of mind and just uh, an understanding, a sensitivity, I guess is a good way to put it, where we can now listen to the Word of God. And what we have sung about this morning is what we're going to look and see uh, in the Word of God that, uh, in just a moment. And so we're going to talk about this salvation that we've been singing about. In fact, that last song that we finished with, uh, Living Hope, I just want to read some of the lyrics from that song. And I want you to think about this. This is what we just have sung. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I am yours forever. Jesus Christ. My living hope. I, I'm not a poet, and I, I struggled with poetry in school. I, I always thought it was difficult to understand, difficult to write, and uh, unfortunately, back then, thought, "What is the purpose in all this?" But man, when I now that I'm a little older, and I uh, appreciate songs so much more now, and the poetry there, these words just scream to me the grace and the goodness of God. It's, it's a declaration of what God has done for us in His Son, and it's the reverberation is now we're declaring back to God. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood. You, you're calling me your own. And so my natural response, really, I should say that my supernatural response in grace is to say, you're a beautiful Savior, and now I am yours forever. You're my living hope. Amen? If you know Jesus Christ today, that's where your life ought to be. That's where your heart ought to be. As we understand the, the greatness of the gospel. And these powerful lyrics really catch the harmony of the great salvation that we have. I want you to just think a little bit further on this for a moment. Of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Jesus, God the Son, as we're going to see in this text this morning. God the Son came to this earth and he paid a debt he did not owe in order to release us from a debt we could not pay. Jesus did something he did not have to do, something he did not deserve for something to give us that we could not accomplish on our own, and we definitely deserved it. We deserved the cross. We deserved the just penalty of the sin that we bear. So, I mean, what an amazing word of truth that we've sung about this morning, that we're going to see in this text this morning. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read things, uh, I, I need something else to kind of further clarify or help me to see what's taking place. I need a word picture of, of some sort. And so let me give you a word picture, really two word pictures. They come from, uh, again, Randy Alcorn's book that I quoted last week, Edge of Eternity. I think they're going to be on the screen for you. The first one says this, the potter, speaking of Jesus, became the vessel that gave its own clay to remake broken vessels. That they might leak no longer and hold at last the eternal waters of their hidden hopes and deepest dreams. 
Randy is painting a picture of Jesus being that great potter who forms and shapes us. And so because we were broken and, and incapable of holding in the eternal waters that he wants to put in us, he himself took his own clay and fashioned it around the clay pot so they could hold the eternal truths and the eternal life that he so desperately and desires wants to give us. The second word picture he paints in his book that I uh, came across again this past week is this. The abyss is vast, but the tree bigger. The crosser is greater than the chasm. The amount due greater than men can imagine, but the price paid greater still. Most of you, if not all of you, have probably never read this book. But let me just paint the picture of what's happening here in this text. There, the, the story is, in the, the book, this, this guy's moving toward eternity, obviously the edge of eternity. He comes to this great chasm, and there's no way to get across and all of a sudden, this man by the name of Woodsman, he's the Jesus figure at this point in the story, he comes and he begins to just chop this giant tree. And he chops for hours upon hours upon hours, and finally the tree falls. And this tree is like Jack and the Beanstalk type tall. It goes way up into the heavens. You can't even see the top of the tree. And he cuts the tree down. It falls over the chasm, but it doesn't fall into the chasm, which, was, which is what he would have expected. So he wonders, what happened? Why is it staying uh, uh, upright? And so he just realizes that it must be on the other side. And so the woodsman invites him to get up on the tree and to cross over the chasm. Thus is what he's saying here. Again, look at it. The abyss is vast, but the tree bigger. The crosser, speaking of Jesus, is greater than the chasm. The amount due greater than men can imagine. The amount that's due our sin is something that we can't even fathom, and yet the price that's been paid to finalize or to bring to null the price for our sin is greater still. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so today as we continue to issue this call to get ready from the book of Revelation, we're going to take a strong look at this salvation that's been purchased for us in Jesus Christ. As we pour over these beautiful words of redemption here in verses 4 through 8, I want you to see that we have an almighty salvation. We're going to see that everything that's talked about in these verses is bookended by the greatness of who God is. And so look with me, if you will, beginning verse 4, let's read through verse 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who are pierced him. Who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Last week as we began our study of the Revelation, we found in what we would call the superscription, these first three verses of this uh, book, we found here an overview of what this letter, this book is going to lay out for us. John's emphasis there, as we see in verse 3, was to clearly uh, move us to a point of understanding and recognizing that Jesus will return and his coming is near, as verse 3 ends. 
And so as we continue to move into this next portion, what we would call the salutation and doxology of verses 4 through 8, we discover that Revelation now begins to take what we would look at and see as a more normal form of a letter. It's going to continue to be that way until the very end of the benediction there in chapter 22, verse 21. And so this morning, we're going to look at this salutation and this doxology, and I want you to see right off the bat, I want you to notice how Christological these verses are. They're Christological. In other words, there's a focus on Jesus in nature, and, and, and the highlight of Jesus being the focus of redemptive history. This Christological focus anticipates what we're going to continue to see over the next 21 chapters, and that is the centrality of the Lamb in all that's going to take place. All of these chapters are going to speak of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see the return of Christ to earth that's depicted in, in the chapters. That's going to be the climax and is the climax of all of history. Everything is moving toward the return of Christ. These verses here describe what we've been singing about. They describe salvation. John addressed uh, right here in at the beginning of verse 4, he addresses this, this section to the seven churches that are in Asia. Who are these seven churches? Well, if we were to just go down a few more verses in verse 11, we would see that he names them for us. In fact, Jesus names them for us. There he speaks of them being the churches who are in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were actual and historical churches within these major cities, these major metropolitan areas in the Roman province of Asia. Today we would know that as modern day western Turkey. There were seven of them that were mentioned. We're going to look at these seven churches and the letters that were sent to them in the next two chapters. But this morning let me just give you some brief oversight or brief um, insight into who these churches might have been. There were seven of these churches in these major metropolitan hubs Perhaps these churches would have rep been representatives of other churches in those locales because you could go and look at some other churches, even churches that had letters sent to them like Colossae, uh, Hierapolis was mentioned in the, in the New Testament. But these seven are the ones that Jesus specifically addresses, seven of them. The number seven ought to perk your minds up. We see that number oftentimes in Scripture. It's an important number, which means uh, when we look at it, in the scriptures, we see it oftentimes outlines the activity and describes the activity of God. It symbolizes fullness. It symbolizes completeness. If we were to go to Genesis this morning and, and look there in the first chapter and in, in the first part of the second chapter, we would see how God created all that there is in six days, and then what did he do on the seventh? Rested. I'm glad to hear that you're still awake. After a long Saturday, you might still be uh, sleepy this morning. Uh, so he rested. Well, what does that mean? It was finished. It was complete. The universe has been created. Life has been created. Everything is finalized. It's finished. And God rested on the seventh day. Some scholars and some commentators uh, look at this and see the seven churches, and they interpret the use of these seven churches as being representative of seven successive periods of church history. I don't happen to buy into that understanding because I look at what's laid out in the two chapters that address these letters to these churches and they don't speak of them representing any sort of um, successive periods of church history. 
They're just letters written to specific churches, which I, mean, which I believe speak to all of us because all churches at all times uh, in some way or another flesh out what's going on in these churches, the good and the bad. So while seven is an important number in the Bible and it's a favorite of John, we're going to see that as we walk through the Revelation that there's going to be many more sevens mentioned. We should not think it is sacred. The use of the seven here is not necessarily sacred. I say that because if we were to go to Revelation 13, 1, we would see that the first beast has seven heads. And so we wouldn't want to uh, ascribe to the beast that he is sacred and holy. And so there's nothing like that. So consequently, what does this mean for the church? It means that these churches were not on a higher plane than the other churches then or even today. They're just representatives of the whole. George Eldon Ladd explains in his commentary that these churches are, as I said, representative of the church at large. He says that the significance here is diversity within basic unity. So the message may be addressed to seven specific churches, but it's given to the whole church in general. Verses 4 through 8, the passage for us this morning, present to the church a glorious, wonderful, beautiful description of of salvation. The passage begins and ends, as I mentioned earlier, with God bookending it. He says the God who is and who was and who is to come in verse 4. Again in verse 8, the God who is and who was and who is to come. It speaks of the eternality of God. And so we see in this the mightiness of God in our salvation. I don't know about you this morning, but I'm grateful to the Lord Jesus Christ that my salvation is not contingent upon what James Taylor can do. Or what James Taylor does not do. My salvation, your salvation, our salvation in Christ is wrapped up in what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have worked to do to bring us to a place of faith and repentance. And we're going to see that in this text. And so here the Bible describes to us what I'm calling this morning an almighty salvation. Because God is at the beginning and God is at the end and he's everywhere in the middle and he's doing all of it. In a mighty way. There's three things I want you to see this morning. We'll do this as quick as possible, which means we'll be here till about three o'clock this afternoon. First thing I want you to see is that out of the fullness of God flow grace and peace. Out of the fullness of God flow grace and peace. Again, verse four: Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. He begins with this description and, and this identification of grace and peace. It's a usual greeting that we find as we read many of the New Testament letters. And Paul actually, at, in two different situations, adds the word mercy to it when he writes to Timothy in his two, his two epistles. The frequent use of this phrase, which we read often, can sometimes lead us to become too comfortable with it. I, I want to encourage you this morning, as you read this, when he says grace to you, this is not just some simple salutation. Hey, I'm writing you a letter. Thanks, you're my buddy. It's not that sort of thing. This is something that we need to understand and not allow the frequency to diminish its theological significance. Grace, as we know, is the divine favor of God given to mankind. It's God just giving his favor, bestowing his favor upon us. It's unmerited mercy if we were to go and see how Paul includes it in these 
the, these two other words in First and Second Timothy, mercy we know to be the divine compassion of God. It's God doing something compassionate for us. We can describe it this way, grace is God giving to sinful man what he does not deserve, that is forgiveness and fellowship. You see, sin is separated us from God, and so we're separated from the God who created us for himself. But in grace, God, through Jesus Christ, invites us into fellowship with himself. That is grace. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve as sinful human beings. And that is, he's not giving us the judgment or the separation our sin requires. It's mercy, and the result of God's grace and the result of God's mercy coupled together brings this concept of peace. We might describe peace as the state of spiritual well-being. You see, while we are in our sin, the Bible tells us that we are hostile toward God. We are at war with the Lord God who created us. And because we're at war with God, we're also at war within ourselves. And because we're at war with God and war within ourselves, we're at war with one another. You want to know the reasons we have wars all around this world? You want to know there's the reasons that we have family feuds and, and, and things that happen at work and all of the, the, the controversy in our day and age, in our relationships, it's all because of our disfellowship with God. Jesus comes and grants us grace and mercy which leads to our peace. He gives us a spiritual state that extends his graciousness. Bruce Metzger in his textual commentary calls attention here to the fact that grace and peace always stand in that order. Read the New Testament, you'll always see that when they're mentioned together, grace is first and peace is second. Why is that? Metzger argues that the reason is because you can't have peace with God until God has been gracious to you. You can't have peace with God until you've experienced grace in your life and God has extended his mercy to you through the cross and through the blood. That's what brings peace. So God is the source of grace and peace. John, however, drills down further on this point. He presents a threefold source. Rather than just saying God is the source of, uh, uh, of, of grace and peace, he says, all right, let's look at this a little more detailed. Grace and peace flow from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who does that speak of? speaks of God the Father. It's a Greek idiom that's alluding back to the uh, idiom that's used there in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses was being told, I want you to go back and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, if I go back, who do I say sent me? And he says, I am who I am. It's an idiom to say, I am who was and who is and who is to come. I am the great I am. And that's what God is saying here in Revelation. The full phrase denotes the eternity of the God who also acts on the scene of human history. He is, he is in the past, he's in the present, he's in the future. See, God has no beginning or end. And he secures an eternal salvation for a finite man who has a beginning and an end. John here is picturing God to his readers as being present with him in salvation. That's why he begins with the present Salvation is further secured by the acts in the past and the promise of his presence in the future. Grace and peace flow from God the Father. Secondly, we see that grace and peace flow from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, if you read a lot of comment commentaries and you read a lot of people who have written on this, you will see that there is some debate as to who this description refers to. Some would say that it refers to angels or, 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 or others, and so they have some good arguments for that. I read it, and I believe it wholeheartedly 
uh, means or speaks of the Holy Spirit. I believe it's representative of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, it's seven spirits. How can it be the Holy Spirit? Again, the seven, the number seven means fullness. It speaks of completeness. And so, obviously, the Bible teaches that there is only one Holy Spirit. So the language here would speak of the fullness of that Holy Spirit. It's similar to the language we find in Zechariah chapter 4, where the Spirit is described as the means of God's activity and power. And there it actually speaks of seven spirits. So the seven spirits then would be the Spirit's fullness in pouring forth grace and peace to the believer. They flow from God the Spirit. And then third, grace and peace flow from Jesus Christ, who is further described. We see a little bit more detail about who Jesus is. John describes him as the faithful witness. In other words, he will always speak the truth. He will always speak the truth of the gospel. John 18, 37, Revelation 3, 14, many other references uh, affirm this. But he is the truth of God. He's also the firstborn of the dead. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Hopefully many of us will be going to Israel in about a year and a half. And, and, and on that trip we'll get, be able to walk through some of the, the places where Jesus lived and walked and, and healed people and, went and did ministry. One of those places we should be going is to an empty tomb. And we will not see Jesus' body there. He has been resurrected from the dead. But was he the first to be resurrected? He wasn't the first. In fact, Jesus himself resurrected others when he was alive. Lazarus is one of those. And so when it talks about Jesus being firstborn of the dead, it's not so much speaking of sequence rather than preeminence. He's the greatest of all who have and who will be resurrected from the dead. John also describes him as the ruler of kings on earth. He's absolutely sovereign over the affairs of this world. Sovereign over all things. One day... The time will come when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Grace and peace flow from God the Son. So the fullness of the triune God pours forth this grace and peace upon you and I. It's the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only Son, John three sixteen, the verse that we all know. It is the Son who offered his life as a ransom for lost sinners, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And it's the Spirit who testifies to the truth of the gospel and draws sinners to faith in Christ. 1 John 5, 6 clearly lays that out for us. And so when we think about this salvation, we need to remember that we have an almighty salvation. There's a second thing that I want you to see, and that is through the blood of the cross, freedom was purchased. We've sung about this this morning. We've sang about how good Jesus is and what his blood accomplished for us. It has created an opportunity for us to be free from all guilt, all shame, all sin. Look at verse 5, the second part. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The titles of the first half of verse 5 refer to the person of Christ. Here, now we're moving from salutation into doxology. This doxology of the second half of verse 5 into verse 6 now is celebrating the work of Jesus and his relation to his followers. Notice the tense of the verbs that are used. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us, present, and then uses past. It's significant. 
John says here that Jesus loves us. He describes Jesus' love here in the present tense. And it signifies for us that this love is a permanent abiding presence in the life of a believer. There are times in your life, there's times in my life when we begin to doubt, does God really love me? Does God really look on me with favor? Am I worthy of what he says is mine? Am I worthy of the salvation? And when we begin to feel that way, you know what ought to spur in our hearts and our minds? Something's wrong. Not with God. Not with what, how he relates to me. There's something wrong with me and how I'm relating to God. Because the Bible over and over and over tells us that God will never leave you or forsake you. His love never fails. So God is a loving God, a present, loving presence in our life. Next, he uses the past tense. He freed us from our sins by his blood. Past tense here signifies the finished work of redemption, which was purchased on the cross. Look over at chapter 5, verse 9 of Revelation. I just want to read this real quick for us. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation and people. God has done that through Jesus. He has freed us in his blood. Shed it on the cross. Why does the Bible speak so much about blood? You know, if a person who had no idea what what Christianity is, no idea what the gospel is, and they wandered in here off the street and sat here for the first time. Maybe there's someone like that this morning. And you hear us sing about blood, and you hear us read about blood, and you hear us preach about blood, and we call people to respond to the blood that was shed for you. You probably would walk away thinking, these people are nothing but a bunch of vampires and weird sick people, right? This is a bloody story. You either love horror movies or you're just a little mixed up when it comes to this stuff. So what is it all about? Why does he speak so much about blood? Well, it's a metaphor that's being drawn from the sacrificial system that we find in the Old Testament. There in the sacrificial system of Israel, the sacrificial lamb represented sacrificial death. In other words, one was dying in place of another. It really speaks of the Passover lamb. You remember that story in, in Genesis or uh, Exodus chapter 12 when God told Moses, Moses, now he's in Israel, or, uh, he's in Egypt, he's been speaking to the Pharaoh, and it's come to the point where the Pharaoh is for the last time digging in his hills, and God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let my people go, and if he doesn't do that, all of the firstborn in all of Egypt will die. When he goes, he shares the message. He uh, obviously digs his heels in more and says, I don't ever want to see you again, right? And so that night, the death angel comes. But before the angel comes, this is what God told Moses. Moses, I want you to get Joshua and I want you to get the leaders of Israel. And I want you to go and I want you to take an unblemished lamb, every family. And I want you to slaughter that unblemished lamb. I want you to take the blood in a coffin or a, a, a bowl of some sort. I want you to take some hyssop and I want you to spread the blood on the doorposts and the headers of the doorways of each home. And when the angel comes tonight, the angel will see the blood and pass over that when the angel of death was bringing judgment on mankind there in Egypt because of their rebelliousness, the angel saw the blood covering over that family and he passed over in grace. That's the picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. This final plague of judgment 
signifies and foreshadows what Jesus was going to do for us. Today we can be freed from the judgment of God for our sins because of what was shed for us on the cross. The payment that was made in full. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and he made a statement just before he breathed his last. What did he say? Tetelestai. It is finished. Paid in full because of the blood. Lastly, he tells us that he made us a kingdom and priests to his God. Again, going back to Israel, when, when Israel gathered together at Mount Sinai after the Exodus, God commissioned them there in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. He commissioned them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, Israel is to live and enjoy the loving and gracious rule of God the Father in their lives. God was to be their king. The same commission, the same call are now given to the church. So those who believe on, those who receive forgiveness in Jesus, who, who receive the forgiveness of their sin because of the blood, become part of this kingdom. Lad raises a question about this, though. He, he, he poses this question. Uh, are the people of God, or is the church part of the kingdom because they serve a king? Or are they part of the kingdom because they participate in the kingdom? The answer to that question, I believe, is an unequivocal yes. Yes to both. Revelation 5.10 answers the question where it talks about how Jesus has made them a kingdom and priests to God and they shall reign on the earth. We've experienced the grace and the goodness of God in our lives personally and we have a king. But the grace of God now calls us into reigning with this king. Let me give you a word picture for this. If you've read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia series. You, you know that the story there, you know Aslan, who is the lion figure, the Jesus figure of the book. At the end of the book, toward the end of the book, when he crowns Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, he crowns them as kings and queens of Narnia. And when he does so, Aslan gives them new kings and he gives them authority. Now, Peter is known as High King Peter the Magnificent. Susan is known as Queen Susan the Gentle. Edmund is known as King Edmund the Just. And Queen Lucy is now known as Queen Lucy the Valiant. They're giving kingdoms to reign within the kingdom. They're giving authority to reign under the authority of Aslan. And today when we come into Jesus Christ, relationship with him, we will rule and reign with him in glory. It's a beautiful thing. It's the graciousness of God. And so not only are believers made into a kingdom, but we're also priests to God. The idea here is that of access. We're not as a church uh, required or given the, uh, the ability to mediate between God and others. I mean, when you come and you ask for prayer, we pray for you. But I can't actually stand in the gap for you and, and, and offer myself for you like Jesus can. So that's not what it's talking about here when, it, when we're becoming priests to God. What it's talking about is access. Now because of Jesus, because of his, his inclusion of us, the redeemed have full access to God the Father and we can now in individually as well as corporately offer and perform the priestly functions of sacrificial thanksgiving, worship and praise to the one who gloriously reigns forever and ever. It's about access. Jesus gives us access. You remember when Jesus was crucified on the cross, what tore in the temple from top to bottom? The veil. This big, thick, uh, uh, I don't know, 
don't know what you call it, drape, curtain is a better term, made of animal skins and, and all of this stuff. It tore from top to bottom. I believe it signifies now we have access to God. God splitting it from the top down, coming to us. All of this is made possible through the blood of Jesus, which frees us from the bondage of sin. What do you mean frees us? I sin every day, right? That's probably what you're thinking. Or you're thinking that about me. I, Pastor, I see you sin all the time. I see you drive up and down the road. I, I see uh, whatever you may think you see. But uh, let's not go there, by the way. Um, <laughs> this is not confession time. Uh, what do you mean freed me? Does that mean you won't ever sin? That's not what it means at all. It means that the power of sin no longer has hold on my life. But I can, and oftentimes still do, choose to sin. But I don't have to. Before I knew Jesus, that's all I knew. I, I couldn't do anything but that. Oh, I might try to do good things. I might try to do that. But that's in my own self-righteousness. That's me trying to earn my way, trying to make my way uh, to where it needs to be or earn my way into heaven. But now I'm freed from the bondage of sin. The shackles have been taken off. And the only one that can put them back on me is me. And it's you. Third thing I want you to notice quickly is that with the clouds, Jesus will return in victory. Verse 7, behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all, who, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 7 really sets the theme of Revelation. It's all about the second coming of Christ, all the events that, that are wrapped up around that event. It builds upon the messianic prophecies that we find in Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 and then again in verse 12 as well as what we see in Matthew 24 verse 30. All of these point to the return of the Lord being a public event, also an event where people will, will be affected by his return. He says that they will mourn at his appearing. So the first time Jesus came into the world, think about this. When Jesus came the first time, how did he come? He came in a manger. He came in the womb of a virgin young girl. He was born into this world as a suffering servant. He came in humility. He came in meekness. He came to offer his life as a ransom for sinners, people who do not deserve it. He was given himself in exchange for their sin. But when Jesus comes the second time, what we're going to see in Revelation, he's coming differently. He will return as a conquering king. His lordship, which is now only recognized believers through faith and repentance, will become inescapably evident to the whole world. Every eye will see him when he comes. And the Bible tells us that they will mourn on account of him. This statement really it seems to point to the idea that they may be mourning because looking inward, introspection, thinking, my sin has caused him to be on the cross because the Bible says you'll be able to see his scars. And so maybe they'll be thinking, I wish I hadn't sinned so that all these things didn't have to transpire. But if you read through the Revelation, we don't get a clear picture of repentance from the people during this time. Apostate man is still in rebellion against God. Rather than repenting when the bowls of wrath are being poured out, they are climbing into holes just trying to weigh out the judgments rather than repenting of sin. So these judgments really only serve to confirm the wickedness of mankind. And so it seems best to me to interpret this verse as Christ being the occasion of their, of their grief and not the object. In other words, they will wail because of the terrible judgment 
which will be inflicted upon them rather than wailing because their sin has caused all these things to happen. And here's good news. Jesus will return. He will finish what he began. Salvation has a culmination. It has an end. See, the story's not over yet. We sing about the victory we have in Jesus. We sing about how the devil has been conquered, how sin has been made no more. But is, still, is sin still present? Absolutely. We war against it all the time. It's devastating families. It's devastating cultures. Sin is a very present danger in our lives. And so if Jesus never returns, if Jesus never comes back, then there's not a finality to this salvation history that has been set forth. So Jesus must, and thank God Jesus is coming back put an end to this. Genesis 3.15, the part of the curse to Adam and to the serpent was that the serpent will be biting the hill, speaking of, I believe, the Messiah to come, speaking of Jesus, but Jesus will crush his head. That started on the cross. That will be culminated in the second return of Christ, where the blood will run to the bridles or the, the horse's sides in the valley. It will be a devastating thing. Salvation will have a culmination. In Christ, believers who have been saved are being saved and will be saved. It speaks of a finished work secured through the blood of cross. And so it's a present work through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in our lives. It's also a future work because it is, again, speaking of His return. And so I want to know this morning, as you read through these verses and see what John is saying, do you see how mighty of a salvation this is? How God has done everything necessary to bring us into relationship with Him. And He's done it all for you and for me. He's done it for us. It's a mighty salvation. The Bible talks about salvation. We could sum it, like, sum it up like this. It talks about the good news. Man, I, I love the fact that God has created you and I for Himself. That I'm not just an accident. Now on Wednesday nights in our class, many of you are in this class that we're taking or, or doing together. Jesus among secular gods. And this past week we talked about atheism and scientism. And, and, and just thankfully God is the one through whom science is proved. Really science is only proved through God is what we looked at this week. And so just thinking about what we hear in our culture today that we are the, um, we are the, experiences of billions upon billions of years of accidents that's now culminated in who, who you and I are. That, that doesn't even make sense to me. But if it were true, if it is true that you and I are an accident, that everything that we are experiencing in this universe is here by chance, what does that do for our self-esteem? What does that do for our self-worth? What does that do for trying to identify who we are and how valuable or unvaluable, invaluable we are. doesn't do anything. So when the Bible talks about the good news of the fact that I've been made by God and for God, this speaks of worth, it speaks of value, it speaks of intentionality, it speaks of the fact that there's a purpose for my life, and that purpose is found only in God. As we've talked about this morning in salvation, we know the story. We know that the Bible tells us that that design that's beautiful and perfect and wonderful and something God intentionally wants to give us and has for us, that's been marred and broken because of our sin. The reason Jesus went to the cross it was because of our sin. We're separated from God. 
But the great news, the best news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He on the cross took your sin and my sin and he wore it. Remember the song that we just sang? He wore our sin and he bore our shame so that we could be forgiven. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, picture this with me. Jesus is hanging on the cross. The man who's never sinned, never had a cross thought, never said a crossword, never, never ever disobeyed his father, heavenly or earthly, is hanging on the cross with your sin and my sin and the sins of the entire world on him. And cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is separating himself from God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, which I don't even understand how that can happen. But because of Jesus bearing our sin, God the Father is pouring wrath upon God the Son so that we could be forgiven through the shedding of his blood. That is the best news, that God so loved the world, he gave himself for you. It's a mighty salvation. When I was 18 years old, a religious kid in Arkansas, wrestling with the gospel for years, when God really got a hold of my heart that morning, out of 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. In that moment, I understood the gospel. That I can be religious, and I can try hard, and I can go to church, and I can do things, and I can hope that my good outweighs my bad. Uh, all of those things that I guess in some way or some fashion I was trusting in. I understood that those were incapable of doing anything for me. And in that moment, I said, Jesus, I need you. And I was saved. Not because I was a good person, not because I was a Southern Baptist, not because I taught 7th grade Sunday school, not because I tried hard and, or, or whatever. Because of my last name, for sure. Good night. That's never got me anything in this world but trouble, <laughs> like some of you. But Jesus, this in grace, called me to himself. And all around this room, we could go around and tell the same testimony that God found me. God was searching me. I was living my own life, I was doing my own thing. I didn't care anything about the, the Lord. Or I was religious and I was trying to earn my way. And somehow, some way, God broke into my heart and I began to understand what I was trying to do, but it's incapable of doing what only God can do. And I responded in faith and repentance. We could tell that story, right? We could tell that story. This morning, some of you can't tell that story. You can't tell that story because you've never had that place that we talked about this morning. But Jesus, because of his acts 2,000 years ago on the cross, now frees you from the bondage of sin. You came to say, I know that, because you don't know that. Today can be that day for you. Some of you are Christians, and you've experienced salvation, and for whatever reason, when I talked about earlier, the only one who can shackle us again is ourselves. As a Christian, the devil can't come and shackle you. He can't possess you. He can't take control of your life. He, you allow him, you allow sinful influences into your life. And so what you initially are, are actually are doing is you're taking sin and you're shackling yourself. Or you're allowing good things in your life to become uh, most important things in your life. And so it's squeezing out the life of God in you. And so what you need to do this morning is experience forgiveness. Not salvation, but a fresh renewing of your heart to the Lord Jesus. Because you're not living and experiencing God's design for you. A mighty salvation. Man, i got so much I'd love to say about that. But may the Lord's Spirit impress upon our hearts and push, push the buttons that need to be pushed today. Uh, some of you need to get saved. Some of you need to say, you know what, I've, I'm done with sin. I'm done with the heartache that it's causing in my life. And you need
need to just get right with God today. Amen? Lord Jesus, your salvation is so sweet. I've tried this morning to do everything I could to paint the picture and how, of how beautiful it is. I've tried to do everything I could this morning to paint the picture of how undeserving we are. So, Lord, we just trust in your spirit to take your word and apply it to our lives. God, give us faith this morning to say yes to whatever you're calling and leading us to do, whatever decisions we need to make. Lord, I, I firmly believe that when we hear the word of God taught and preached, that we immediately need to respond to it. I believe that because that's the, that's the natural response we see from men and women in Scripture. There's no delay in their obedience. There's immediate obedience. Otherwise, it's not obedience. So I pray this morning for men and women and even children today, teenagers, who have never in their life repented of sin, turned from it, and by faith asked you to become the Lord and Savior of their life and experience forgiveness. God, I pray today would be the day of salvation for someone like that, for some like that. God, I pray for Christians who struggle with sin day in and day out. God, their marriages are struggling. Their family situations are difficult. Their work relationships are strained. For whatever reason, they seem to keep falling back into an old pattern of life. And yet the Word of God tells us that I've been freed from sin. Lord, I pray today would be a, one of those marker moments in their life. out before you, repent, turn, God you do something fresh and new in our lives, thank you for what you're doing in our church, so many great things, Lord perhaps all the, some from all the new faces and families that have been visiting for months, God maybe you're beginning to stir on their heart and say this is a church you need to be a part of, you need to roll your sleeves up, you need to go to work in this church, you need to get involved, you need to give, you need to go, you need to serve, Lord I pray that you'd help those that you're, you're, you're pointing and you're knocking on their hearts to make the decision to say, you know what, I want to begin this process. God, in this time of response, help us to be open. Help us to re respond to it in Jesus' name. Let's stand to our